Uh, Our text this morning, if you will turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And I've got some pictures. I don't know what y'all want to do with the lights. I'm going to show some pictures uh, here in this. So Melissa and I... um, Melissa and I solidified our relationship with uh, the fir- our, uh, a first kiss, really, uh, in Lubbock on September 7th of 1997. So that was the night uh, she actually kissed me, even though I was dressed up like that. Uh, <laughs> the explanation for that outfit is that my friend David and I, we, we would dress up, show the next picture there, we would dress up like cowboys. We played pop music, but we called it Texas pop, so we dressed up like cowboys and uh, would wear uh, this uh, HBRC ranch wear like all the country singers used to wear back in the 1950s. They still make that stuff. And so that night, we happened to be in Lubbock. We were playing at a Buddy Holly festival. That's actually my friend David and me with Maria Elena Holly. That was Buddy Holly's wife, That if you've ever seen those movies. So she had some of his clothes there, and she let us try them on, and I was about the same size as Buddy Holly. But we would wear these nutty outfits, and we'd wear them downtown Nashville. And we're like, look, we've got to give the tourists something to see, right? So that was, that was kind of our, our attitude. We were part of the culture down there that you would go down and see. We'd go down there and play at the different uh, coffee shops and bars and things like that. And during that time of my life, I remember working very hard to save up enough money to buy Melissa a diamond ring. And I was ready to make things official. So I saved up $1,000 and got a diamond ring. It wasn't very big, but that's what I could afford. And on December 23rd, 1998, I took my guitar and the engagement ring, and I put on a sports coat, and I drove down to Gorman, where Melissa lived, and I said something like this. I showed up. She actually, their their toilet was broken or something, and when I rang the doorbell, she thought it was the plumber. And it turned out I surprised her. I told her parents I was coming, but I didn't tell her. So I surprised her. I came in with my guitar, sat her down. Her parents left the room, and I said something along these lines. I said, Melissa, I can tell you how much I love you, but it would be better to show it. And then, of course, I got, that was when I was like, I'm going to get on one knee right then. So I got on one knee, and I said, I would like to spend the rest of my life showing you how much I love you. Will you marry me? And she said, of course I'll marry you. And then I got my guitar and I sang Let It Be Me by the Everly Brothers. And then her mom came in and took pictures of us. So I've got, that's uh, her the night we got engaged with uh, her ring on. And there's me uh, looking on, uh, realizing that was like a really small thing to buy for $1,000. But it was worth it because we got engaged. So we went down a few months later in March and we took engagement pictures And we were sort of going through a phase where we had haircuts with bangs. As you can see there, Melissa looked really cute with bangs. And I looked like one of the Three Stooges, but uh, it was was the time. So we were engaged for five months. And we were looking forward to the big day. And there was our engagement picture. And you could even see, uh, can you see on there, they, you know, Melissa Clark and Chad Edgington to... Pledge nuptials. They, they misspelled pledge uh, in the Gorman progress. We've got that immortalized. So that, that was, uh, that was the, the, you know, the Gorman progress had some really famous uh, uh, mis, mis, uh, typos, okay? Uh, so remember Y2K. 
You remember when it was going to turn into the year 2000 and everybody was worried about what was going to happen? Was the grid going to survive? Were we going to have electricity? And so in Gorman, they decided to have a church service on New Year's Eve that went all the way to midnight. And so they were going to sing from like 8 p.m. to midnight. And so they they intended to say, a great place uh, to, to sing when the lights go out. But they left off the G, and so it said, come to First Baptist Gorman, we're going to have a big singing, it'll be a great place to sin when the lights go out. And, uh, <laughs> so this, this was mild compared to what we normally got out of the Gorman progress, but we were ready to spend the rest of our lives together, and I was living in Nashville, and she was finishing up school in Brownwood, and we had the fine china. We had a place to live. We had dish towels. I'd never had dish towels in my life, but I was living in a house with dish towels and a blender and all these things that we had for our marriage, but we weren't together yet. And I was living in this big house with all this stuff we'd accumulated. And I was sleeping there in that house, in our bed. And I was using our bathroom, and I was watching our TV, and I could call Melissa and talk to her and tell her about all the stuff we had. But I couldn't talk for too long because back then, if you talked long distance, it was 10 cents a minute. And we were so close to being officially husband and wife. There was a lot of already, but there was also a lot of not yet. A lot of already, but a a lot also of not yet. And so finally the big day arrived. You can show picture six there. The big day arrived. And that was our, one of our wedding pictures. We were married on May 22nd, 1999. And you can see the other picture there. We were leaving the church and notice the shirt. <laughs> Still got it. All right. It's fitting a little tighter than it did in 1999. But... Uh, So you're probably wondering, well, that's great. Chad, we're so happy for you and Melissa that you got married all those years ago, nearly a quarter of a century ago. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? You can take that off the picture up there. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China, you may be asking? But today our text deals with our salvation. It deals with the work of Christ. It deals with timing. And it's a text that hits on the idea of the already and the not yet of the resurrection. I was engaged, and there was a lot of already, but there was a lot of not yet. And and I was living between our engagement and our marriage, I was living in the in-between time. Did you know that as a Christian, you are living in the in-between time? We've had the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus has raised from the dead, so we know the resurrection's a reality. It's going to happen. So there's, a, there's kind of an already to the resurrection, but there's also a not yet to the resurrection. There's an there's a already to your salvation, and there's a not yet to your salvation. So when you leave here today, if I'm thinking about the sermon in a sentence is that you need to be aware that you're living in the in-between time. You're living in the last days, but the end has not come. The resurrection of Jesus has kicked off and inaugurated a new age in history, but it's not totally fulfilled. Now, if you don't understand that, you'll misread the Bible because you'll say, well, I thought I'm this. A crazy story. We were at Branson one year, and this 
this guy, so we, we would take our group from Wake Village up to Branson. I was the bus driver. That means you get free popcorn and Coke everywhere you go. And uh, I, so I was eating, had been eating a bunch of popcorn and Coke, and we're driving the bus around. Well, we would take the senior adult group, you know, I mean, they went to bed at like 4.30 in the afternoon, so we would like take the, I'm just kidding, uh, we would take them back early. They wanted to go to bed after the last show we saw. But Melissa and I, we wanted to go on dates. So we would get in our 39-passenger bus, and we would go on dates, but we usually had to find a big parking lot, like so we'd park at Walmart, go on a date. Well, one day we were parked at Walmart, and this guy's coming out of a bar. I think I've told you all this story before. Uh, he's coming out, and he's beat up. And we said, he said, can I talk to you all for a minute? Are you all from that church? Because the bus of First Baptist Church of Wake Village on it. Yes. Well, I got, I got to know what, what just happened to me. I just went in there and, and, and shared the gospel and confronted people about their sin, and they beat me up and kicked me out. He said, why did that happen to me if I'm seated in the heavenly places? And we had to explain to the guy the already and the not yet. <laughs> in a sense, spiritually, because of what Christ has done, you are seated in the heavenly places. But until the trumpet sounds... Until the end of time, actually, the eschaton, until that actually happens, there's an already and there's a not yet. And so you've got to be careful realizing that you are still living in this world, brother, and this world is not your home. So when you go in there and you tell them the truth, the people in this world are going to kick you out. Okay, Jesus is Lord of all already, but he's not Lord of all uh, yet, in a sense. That there's a, so you won't understand your Bible You'll say, well, Jesus, Lord of, Lord of all, why are, why, are good people, why are bad people prospering? Why are good people suffering? And say, hold on to your horses. Hold on to your horses. Because yes, there is an already, and there's also a not yet. You are already adopted, but you're not yet adopted. You're already redeemed, but you're not yet redeemed. You're sanctified, but you're not yet sanctified. You're saved in Christ. You're being saved in Christ, and one day you will be saved in Christ. You're raised with Christ spiritually, but you're not yet raised physically. There's a theologian that I borrowed heavily to develop this sermon from. His name is Oscar Coleman, and he says the already not yet framework, which when you go to seminary, that's one of the first things they teach you, especially in hermeneutics, which is the study of how to interpret the Bible, is you have to understand the already and the not yet. He says it is the silent presupposition that lies behind all the New Testament says is that things are the way they are right now, and there is a certain fulfillment to everything God's Word has said, but there's also one that's coming that's a fuller fulfillment. With that in mind, let's look at the text, and you can actually see the already and not yet in the Bible, so you'll know I'm not just making this up. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's what we would call the already. Has the grace of God appeared? Yes. Can you be saved today? Yes. And I invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you trust Jesus, you are a new creation in Christ. But you're still a sinner. And you will remain a sinner. But you're also in Christ already. You've been raised. You have been seated in the heavenly places. You are no longer bound to serve sin. You can obey Jesus. You are holy, but you're not yet Fully holy. So we obey because holy people, and we work to obey because holy people will not let sin reign in their mortal bodies. So notice, this is fleshed out in verse 12. 
So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, in the already, in the now. So the salvation has appeared, the grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to renounce worldly passions and to be self-controlled and upright and godly now. And I'll talk about how it trains us here in just a minute. But what about the not yet? Look at verse 13. So the grace of God has appeared, but what are we doing? We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And right there I want you to notice and underline that. The glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. There is an indication in your Bible that if anybody tells you Jesus is not God, it says it right there. Okay, the Bible, when it talks about the second coming, it talks about Jesus coming. Okay, it's not saying that God's going to appear and Jesus is going to appear. It's saying that our great God and Savior Jesus is going to appear. That's what he promised to do, to come again and take us with him so we might be where he is, where he's preparing a place for us. So what is this speaking of? What are we waiting for? What is our hope? Our hope is that because Jesus was risen from the dead, when Jesus appears, we will be resurrected. And we will receive a body like His. And you will not sin. Who is this Jesus? This great God and Savior? Look at verse 14. He's the one who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. That's kind of borrowing language from the Old Testament. It's a concept called the segula in Hebrew. It means special possession, treasured possession, valued possession. What is that? That was if you went into a man's tent back in those days, And he said, I have to show you something. And he would take you back and he would take you to his treasure chest and he would open it up and say, here's my prized possession. Here's the most valuable thing I own. What this verse is telling us is that Jesus died on the cross. He lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and he did that so that you might be his own segula special possession. Here's my prize. It's us. That's why He did what He did. That's why He gave Himself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And this is telling us that Jesus gave Himself willingly as well. He wasn't going to the cross against His will. He didn't come in the flesh against His will. He came because He was giving of Himself to redeem us, to pay the price. To pay the price for us from all unlawlessness. To purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We've received already and we will be received. We've been redeemed from all lawlessness and we will be redeemed. We've been purified and we will be purified. We are a people belonging to Jesus, zealous for good works, and we will belong to Him. And we will be perfectly sinless and righteous one day. Then in verse 15, he tells Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you. Declare what? Declare the danger of false teachers and false doctrine. Declare the way we are to live the Christian life with one another. That's our last two sermons that we've had. And to declare the already of salvation and to declare the not yet of salvation. 
Well, how does this work in my actual life? What's the application? Oh, well, the next time you're tempted to sin, tempted to do something you shouldn't do, tempted to say something you shouldn't say, tempted to think in a way you shouldn't think, tempted to let yourself get down in the dumps and all those ways that we react whenever we're tempted to sin, remember this reality that we've talked about the already and the not yet, that you are holy. You've been made holy. You've been, Jesus gave Himself for you. He's redeemed you. He's purified you. You are saved. And so as your flesh is contemplating the temptation, and your flesh, you know how, our, how, how we do, we start thinking about something that we want to do, we know it's wrong, but we start getting our mind set on doing it, and we're making up our mind to sin, and we're thinking about the cheap thrill and the temporary pleasure that we know isn't going to satisfy us, but we want to do it anyway. Remind yourself, I'm already saved. I am already an overcomer of sin through Jesus Christ. The resurrection spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me already. I can flee this temptation if I will. I do not have to sin. I do not have to think this way. I do not have to say this. I do not have to do this. You are able, because of the already of salvation, to resist sin. We can think of it like this. Because of what Jesus has done, a chunk of the not yet has been brought, a chunk of the future, let's say it that way, a chunk of the future of the Lord's kingdom over everything has been brought into the future for you. If you'll submit yourself to Jesus Christ, that ultimate lordship of Jesus over everything can be brought from the future and put into your heart. Where you have a desire for Jesus to be Lord of your life. And you can start to think about that, and that, that uh, as, as the, the, the Scripture is saying, that grace of God that has appeared, that can train you to renounce ungodliness as you think about the reality of what has happened. That you've been indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, and you've been given a new nature that desires different things. You don't have to run back to the vomit like a dog does. You can go somewhere else. You can go and obey. Now, are you going to do this perfectly every time? No. Don't be discouraged when you lose some battles. Be encouraged by this fact. You will lose some battles, but you will not be defeated. One day, for a believer, your faith will become sight. And all of that not yet will eventually become the now. All of that not yet one day will be fulfilled. And you will be able to, 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 I mean, it's just hard for me even to imagine. I shouldn't just say be able. It'll just, we'll, live, we'll be perfectly righteous like Jesus Christ. We won't have any desire to sin. What will that be like? That will be wonderful. I can't even imagine not being tempted, not being, not being prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's where I live now. But one day when the, when the not yet is here, when that trumpet sounds and in the twinkling of an eye, we're all changed. And we're given those white robes and we're given a resurrection body. And there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. One day, all of the things that Scripture contemplates will be true. How do I know? Because it's already here in a sense. When Jesus rose from the dead and was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so I know it's coming. And so I should let the reality of the now and the reality of the not yet 
train me to renounce ungodliness so that I can please God and do the things that I actually want to do. Of course, we're sitting here in church, right? So when we sit here in church, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's kind of an amazing thing. The things we say from behind the pulpit, the things we feel when we're taking the Lord's Supper or when we're sitting in the pew, is that not who you really want to be? That's who I want to be. I want to be one who's got his heart in his mouth, but sometimes I walk out these doors, and later tonight, when these 20 preteen boys are wanting me to do this and do that and tell him to quit doing this, and blah, 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 blah. I'm really going to have to remember that I'm redeemed. <laughs> and I'm going to have to remember that I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ to these boys and showing them the gospel. But I can allow what I know is true about the gospel to train me to renounce ungodliness because I've got a great Savior who gave Himself for me and I've been redeemed and I've been purified and I belong to Him. And so I want to do what He says and I just have to remember those things. What's holy in here is holy everywhere else. The desires that I have when I'm in here are my desires everywhere else. It just gets harder the further away I, t- I tend to get from you on Sunday morning. But that Holy Spirit is living inside of me. That Holy Spirit's living inside of you. And if He's not, today I would ask you, What's holding you back? We know where everything is headed. Everything is headed to Jesus as Lord. Why not make Jesus the Lord of your life today?